0: I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Bamidbar is titled Growing Pains, The Journey Towards Responsibility. The Book of Bamidbar moves us into a long transitional period for the Jewish people. In the wilderness, they are on a journey to establish self-rule and responsibility before being able to enter the land of Israel. Each episode of this series will explore how the Parsha understands and processes the maturation of the people and Moshe's leadership of them. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you, have, if you have deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. As is my usual custom, I will open this episode with a general introduction to the Book of Bamidbar. The setting of the book is, of course, in the wilderness, but the people move around during this period. The first 10 chapters surround their stay in the Sinai Desert and covers a mere 20 days. The second section, spanning chapters 10 through 20, primarily focus on their stay in Kadesh Barnea and several stops along the way. The third section, spanning chapters 20 through 36, detail their travels from Kadesh to Arvot Moav on the borders of Israel. Geographically, this connects perfectly between the Mishkan or Sinai base in Vaikra and the Arvot Moav base in Dvarim. Somewhere between the second and third section, we pass through 38 years. Time moves quite oddly in the Book of Amidbar, a topic I'm sure we'll address in further episodes. But the content of the book also includes a zigzagging and a mixture of law narrative, a combination which at times seems somewhat random. Scholars and commentators have tried to make sense of this amalgamation, and I think the most convincing theory is that the laws given in the book come to rectify much of the disorder expressed in the predominantly negative narratives that we read throughout Sefer Bamid One of the best examples of this is the enigmatic law of the aduma, the red heifer, which seems to come at random. However, its recording precedes the deaths of Miriam and Aharon and the announced death of Moshe. This ritual process provides a framework for processing, both in a technical level of purity and impurity, and an emotional framework for processing the loss of this generation, both of its members and of its leaders. I cannot summarize one central theme of Bamidbar. There are several, but in light of our previous series on Brishit and family dynamics, I want to point out one before we begin our own journey through these Parshiyot. When learning Brishit, we spoke often about the fact that the Torah never tries to present our greatest figures as flawless, but rather digs deep into the traits and personal challenges they needed to overcome. The book of Bamidbar does this as well, but on a national level, and also regarding the nation's leaders, particularly Moshe. It isn't simply, let's record all the big deal mistakes that were made during this period, but really about what challenges they needed to overcome as a people before they could accept their mission and enter the land of Israel. Do the people enter it perfectly? Not at all. In fact, they fail at most of their trials in the desert, so much so that God decides to start again with the next generation. The Torah constantly teaches us that we can overcome our flaws, but that it requires deep human strength and continual work. Parshat Bamidbar itself opens with the census of the people, a description of the organization of the camp what tribes travel together and ends with the tabernacle responsibilities given to each of the Levitic families. The thread that connects the first and third section of the Parsha is the hovering danger potential in this transitional space. The census has direct connection to those eligible for war and the refrain the Parsha ends with regarding the Levitic work in chapter 4 Sukkim 19 through 20 is that as long as instructions are followed, the Levites will live and not die, I quote, from their responsibilities. This vaguely recalls the sons of Aharon who made this fatal mistake. My partner in conversation today is the amazing Dr. Tanya White, a beloved lecturer at Matan's Jerusalem and Ranana branches, a returning podcast guest, and a dear friend. On episode three, we spoke about her journey into Torah Learning. Episodes 28 through 31 has our series on suffering through the lens of Jewish sources. Episodes 44, 60, and 82 are other Parsha-based conversations that we've had. And if you want to look even further, a collection of Tanya's articles, blogs, and published materials can be viewed on her website, www.tanyawhite.org. Tanya, it's amazing to have you here again.
1: It's great to be back with you again, Yosefa. I love coming on this podcast.
0: Amazing. So we're going to sort of I hope in this conversation both provide a general introduction to the book of Amidbar and also speak specifically about the about the census, about the counting in the beginning of the book. So why don't you bring us in to this idea of, of the Amidbar as our space of maturation? Why there? The reason I'm actually funnily
1: enough teaching Sefer Bamidba this year and continuing to teach at Matan next year. Um, and it's for me, I've always loved Sefer Bamidzbar, It's been one of my favorite books, primarily because there's something about it that ignites my curiosity, because I always see it as a book that wasn't meant to be. Meaning, had we not sinned with various things that the Ben Israel had done during Sefer Bamid, we would have gone straight into the land. And I question whether the book itself would have existed. The fact that we're in the desert for 40 years, to me, that speaks more than words meaning there's something about the book that creates this in-between space and the midbar itself the wilderness is an in-between space in a lot of the midrashim we speak about the fact that the Torah was given in the midbar because the midbar is Hefgel, meaning it doesn't belong to anyone it reminds me a lot of Eric Fron's book to have and to be it's a place of being it's not a place of having it's a place whereby we are able in a sense to develop because development, maturity, growth, requires an empty space, okay? When we are bounded into something, it's very difficult for us to grow and to move. So the way that I approach the book is I see it, the book itself, Bamidbal, and even Bamidbal, the word, has so many different meanings. Bamidbal is obviously the wilderness. It also means le dabel right midbar comes from the word dibor and speech also is, is to me one of the the central themes in the book if we look at how many times the theme returns the mitonah name the complaints miriam's lashon hara the maraglim, korach when the mouth of the earth swallows him the Benots Lofchad, moshe hitting instead of speaking to the rock there's so much about speech that dominates the book and i think speech is one of the primary imageries in the book simply because exactly as you said before the book, Bamidbal, is the space in which we grow as a nation. We grow up, we mature, we become, we're ready at the end of the book to enter the land and to be mature adults entering, or mature nation entering their own land and being independent. And it reminds me a lot of Donald Winnicott, who speaks about different stages in the development. Donald Winnicott is one of very well-known British psychoanalyst and child development specialist. And he speaks about the idea that there's three stages in the development of an individual. He says there's the stage of total dependency when the infant is totally dependent on the mother or father, whoever, the parental figure, there's what we call interdependency. Okay, And that's the stage in which the parent has to disillusion to a degree the child, the infant and, sh- and disillusion the infant from the parent's omnipotency. And the final stage he calls, and it's very interesting because he doesn't have a full stage, the final stage he calls towards independency, not independency, because in some senses, all of us are always towards independency. And... Why? Because we are we exist in a matrix of relationships. We're never truly one hundred percent independent, and this connects, I think, very much with what we're going to speak about in a minute or two, which is the idea of the census and the idea of what it is to create a nation of individuals. So that's Donald Winnicott, that move from dependency to towards independency. And in my mind, that is what Sefer Bamidbar is. It's this space, this liminal space, whereby we're neither in one place or another place. It's a space that engenders vulnerability. It engenders um, feelings of insecurity, of uncertainty. And the biggest question is how we grapple with that space, how we grapple with that in betweenness that Sefer Bamidbar presents so as a people to us. I want
0: to just go on back to that point you said about the sort of, it's a book that was never supposed to be. Because, first of all, I, I do, I also think about that a lot. And I think about this idea of how, about time. So time in the sense that, theoretically, this in-between, in-between space for Am Yisrael was supposed to be extremely short. It wasn't supposed to take us so long, necessarily, to make this very great leap, and, and for all different reasons, uh, faults of our own, and maybe perhaps... They were flaws that were supposed to come out anyways, and so because we needed that time, so it becomes a much longer amount of time than what was initially planned. But I think that that also says a lot about the way people develop. Why does the Torah report nothing about those 38 years in the middle? Yeah I think that a lot of it is about how a lot of when we grow up and mature, not all moments are monumental. And that a lot of maturation is going through the motions of regular life, getting used to a new stage, getting used to the things we're capable of, we're not capable of. They're not all newsworthy items, and so I think that by skipping over "quote unquote" thirty-eight years, you know, and are, you know, we're always wondering the parsha name. Where did those thirty-eight years go? I think that it speaks volumes about the way people mature. It's something that happens over a span of time, and it doesn't always have these clear markers to it. And the clear markers we have, so that the Torah records them in the Book of Amidbar And we do have some sort of more highlights towards the end where we have more successful wars and we're able to dove in as a collective, but but the process of maturation, if you look at your kids, you know, once in a while you notice something, you know, really different. Wow. I suddenly noticed that somebody grew bigger. I suddenly notice that somebody's mood has shifted. I suddenly notice that they look slightly different. But you don't notice maturation on a daily basis. And I think that by the Torah skipping over those 38 years is also reflecting that very human point, that it, it's not a, something you can sort of summarize each day anew how I matured. It's a long process, and, and sometimes it'll be it'll be worthy of speaking of, and sometimes it won't be.
1: So I really love what you said, and I think it's very poignant. The way that I always saw it, and it's interesting because your perspective is slightly different, the way that I always saw it was that the people needed God to be silent for 38 years, meaning, and it again this reminds me of what Donald Winnicott speaks about, the disillusioning of the omnipotence of the parent, that there had to be some disconnect, some disillusionment from the, you know, the omnipotence of God, the revelation of God that was a constant throughout their early years, to the silence that total almost disconnect between God and his people and the people having to learn to exist without constant revelation and in my mind that 38 year gap is the is the way in which the people grow up and in the I mean one of the paradigms of the second generation, the positive paradigms of the second generation, is that obviously the Benot who come to Moshe and who have thought out and speak in the right way and know how to present that argument, they, they've shown that they've matured to the degree that they are able to present something that is about the individual and protecting the individual and at the same time is something about the group as well. And So in my mind, that 38 years allows them to go through a process of disillusionment in Donald Winnicott's language that allows them to mature. Do they make mistakes? Of course they make mistakes afterwards. Who doesn't, right? All of us make mistakes, even when we presumably are mature and older. But I think that the personality of the people is very, very different to what it was originally in the beginning of the book.
0: Yeah, I think also those two points, they, they can work together. I was reading that silence as a reflection of the people's maturity, and you were reflecting it as a silence in the part of God, right? And that yeah. silence in the part of yeah. God is sort of, you know, cutting that umbilical cord from the people. And yeah. I think that they're, they could both function together, yeah, but I yeah, like that 100%. we have those two ways of looking at that idea.
1: The other idea, Yosef, I wanted to touch on, which I think is another massive theme in the book, is the interspace between order and chaos, mm. which again is is something that I think dominates the whole of Sefer Bamizban, definitely the whole of the book, the whole of the Torah, even Tanakh. Chapters 1 to 10, we see are very, very much about order. They're very much about flags and the structure around the Mishkan and um, the encampment of the tribes and who's inside and who's outside. Tuma and Tara, who's inside the camp, who's outside the camp. The Nazir, the Sotah, the people on the fringes, the Livy Im. To me, the entire chapters 1 to 10 is, in a sense, trying to tame the wildness of the wilderness, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not just the geographical space of the wilderness, but the wilderness of the the individual, the wilderness of the slave mentality. In a sense, we all need order. In chapter 11, again, there's total chaos. In Parshat Barlot, people complain, and there's a total breakdown. Even Moshe goes into a mode of total crisis, And throughout the book, we have these moments of order and crisis, all the time, order and crisis. And the book is an oscillation between the two. And I think, again, that also reflects a certain element, a certain characteristic of maturity, the mature individual Jordan Peterson in his book the 12 rules for life really focuses on this idea of order and chaos he actually reads it into ancient mythology and shows us that in ancient mythology almost all the myths are ones that are oscillating between order and chaos and he says it's very much part of human nature that in a sense we want order and very often we're thrown into chaos and the biggest question is how we are able to navigate between those two ends of the spectrum. And in my mind, that also is a theme in Sefer Bamidbah and it also connects the idea of the maturing of the nation.
0: As I said in the introduction, that's one way that that sort of some makes sense of the combination of law and narrative in the book. I mean, the narratives come and show you all the sort of frayed, <laughs> chaotic elements yeah. of the people, and then comes in law and tries to make some sense sense of it. I think also it speaks to the the eternal role of what law is supposed to do, meaning law is not necessarily something that we always connect with, it's not something that we always think is exactly what we needed at that exact moment, but law as a concept, i.e. halakha, is there to create a framework for us among life and life's vicissitudes, that they themselves are are chaotic. So I think that it's an important piece, both in the local setting of bar and the way that people are slowly becoming organized around some sort of society and of course i think the message eternally is also one that is incredibly important this idea that people people need that kind of sort of restraint they need that kind of of order to create again some feel the need for this more than others for some it feels more intuitive than others but certainly as a society which is what ultimately we're trying to create in bamid bar uh, we're trying to create a society society needs those laws to prevent chaos i think that's a really important point So on that piece about order and chaos, we really jump right into the beginning of Sefer Bamidbar, into the the census itself. As you said, you know, there's another way to also frame the sort of the oscillation between the organization and the parts that come after, as you said, which really changes in, in chapter 11. There are those that also speak about this as theory and practice, which is another way that we could look at it, meaning in theory, there was a tremendous amount of order. In theory, there was a societal frame. And then the question becomes, well, what actually happens in real time? And then in real time, we have to take the blueprint we're given and and put it into practice. But for now, let's focus on the blueprint itself of, of the census. So what do you think is sort of the significance of opening up the Book of Amidbar with this census? Again, on the most basic shot levels, as I said in my introduction, there's a military element here that shouldn't be ignored. Exactly. It's it's necessary. Yeah. It's showing a, a society needs, its military needs, its protection. We're going to have to fight wars, but obviously there's much more here than just that, that side.
1: Exactly what you said. It, it, on the shot level, the people about to go into the land, remember I said this book is a book that wasn't meant to be. So really, you know, we've created the Mishkan, we've created the centrality of the religious, experience the centrality of the holiness within the center of the camp and now it's time for us to enter the land and um, we see in Parshat bar Moshe says we're about to enter the land meaning we're ready we're going and one of the things that we need when we enter a land is an army, obviously. And a census is is the counting of the men for the army. So that's on a very kind of literal understanding reading of the book. But I want to I actually look at the pasuk itself because I think the pasuk is a key in unlocking um, the idea of how we build a society today, how we build a nation today. Very often, I mean, in terms of liberal democracy, we constantly, we are always trying to walk a very narrow bridge between the rights, the dignity of the individual and the necessity of the group, um, the survival of the group. What we've seen in Israel in the recent past is also sitting on this very narrow divide between the rights of the individual and individual liberty. And the, in a sense, survival of the group, right? Survival of Israel. And what I want to do is I want to begin by reading the Pasuk itself and then unpacking it and trying to understand what is significant in the way that the Pasuk is written. So if we look at Mamash at the beginning of Sefer Ba LeMo. so God spoke to Moshef and Oa Moed. Su et koladat lift up the heads of every person in Israel. Levate avotam she'mot, according to their household, by the number of their names. Kol every male, according to literally their skull, right? But their head count, basically, according to their head count. Mi ben from 20 years old, anyone who goes out to the army. And then the text continues and it lists the names that in Pasuk itchem, it lists the names of all the leaders of the tribes. And every time it mentions their names, it also mentions the idea of their household. And it mentions the idea of their name, right? It keeps repeating. one. The words that keep repeating themselves again and again and again are the idea of two or three things repeat themselves. Number one, the idea of lifkod, which is to count, right? Again and again, it keeps saying Bemispa shemot, the number of their names. And we also have the term legul gotam, their skull, their head count. And in my mind, there's a few things going on here. First and foremost, we have two different elements of counting. We have, number one, we have the idea of tifkuduotam. We have the idea of counting them. Now, we could have used any word for counting, right? Lispol, limnot. There's many different words that can be used. And specifically here, the word lifkod is used. And lifkod is more than just to count. When you talk about someone having a tough kid, you're talking about someone having a role, right? Someone having a purpose, there's another very, very important thing, and that is the idea that keeps repeating itself, mispah she'mot, name, the name, the number of the names. And then, obviously, in the second pasuk, which is super important, et rosh kolada b'nei Yisrael, lift up the heads of the people of Israel, le and it goes through the concentric circles of attachment of the individual to their families, to the house of their fathers, b'mispah shemot, and the, the number of their names. In my mind, what is going on here is a very, very simple, yet profound manifesto on the idea of how we build a society, how we bring disparate individuals together into a whole. Now, I want to go back a a, a little bit in history, and I want us to think for a second about how societies are built and how modern liberal democracy came about to a degree It's always a dialectic between, and here I'm going to to touch on what Sefer Bamidbar is, because Sefer Bamidbar is about the census. It's named in English. It's called the Book of Numbers. It's named after the census in English, right? Where did they get the English translation from? They get it from the Chazal's name of the book, which is Sefer HaPakudim, right? Which is the book of now, the English translation says, okay, it's the book of numbers because it's the book of counting, but it's not the book of counting because Sefer HaPakudim is not about counting. It's about the role of each individual. It's not that you're just a number. And if, if, you, if you die, okay, we'll get someone else instead. Every individual has a role. Every individual has a dignity. And when Moshe says, lift up the heads of the people of Israel, what he's saying to the people is you're not just a number. I'm lifting your head up, I'm giving you a sense of dignity. Now again, what does this mean? It means, it asks the question, any society that's built is going to ask the question, is a society built on those who want to count or those who want to be counted on? And to me, that is the two different dynamic of, I want my rights or what are my responsibilities? Mm -hmm. And this very narrow path between rights and responsibilities will make or break a society. Mm -hmm. Now, in the recent past, there's been two profoundly brilliant books by two very different people who have spoken about exactly the same thing. One of them is someone called Robert Putnam. He's one of the most famous sociologists in America. His book, Bowling Alone, was one of the bestsellers. And he just now recently, I just got it in the post, it just did it. His second book is, not his second book, it's, it's, goodness knows how many books he's written. But the book he wrote most recently is called The Upswing. Both Bowling Alone and The Upswing focus on the idea of the I and the we, and how we can build a liberal society based on notions of communitarianism rather than notions of radical individuality. Meaning, he asked the question of how we can remain individuals and yet, and with all our individual rights, and yet still dedicate a sense or, or inculcate a sense of responsibility to the greater good. And he calls that social capital. Rabbi Sachs in his book, Morality, wrote about almost an identical topic. His focus was on morality. His focus was on how do we build a community that nurtures the common, what he calls the common good. But again, what he, what Rabbi Sachs emphasises is it doesn't have to be at the price of the individual. It can also be... The individual can also still maintain his rights and his liberties and everything that we hold dear in liberal democracy and yet still work for the good of the whole. So both of these great men, in their very different fields, both of them spoke about this notion of how we take individuals and we create a society. Now, in Torah itself, we have a classic example of one extreme, where the individual individual is totally repressed and the group is dominant. That narrative is the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, there's no names at all. There's only the name, right? Vinaseh lanushem, the name of the whole. In modern times, that is communism or socialism or whatever else you want to call it, where the individual is repressed, the rights of the individual are repressed in order to nurture the common, common goal of the whole. Today... In Western democracies, we're seeing the other extreme. And that's where we have radical individualism. And radical individualism is about the self, it's about the ego, it's about self-interest. It's about not being able to see beyond the parochialism of the I, of the I, the individual. And... What I think we, what today society needs and is calling for is for us to go back to what Robert Putnam calls social capital, what Rabbi Sachs calls the common good, and for us to be able to recognize that when we build responsibility, when we nurture responsibility to something bigger than ourselves, it doesn't necessarily negate the dignity and the rights of the individual.
0: So Tanya, I think that there are two responses that the Torah probably has to offer to that dilemma, which again, yes, you know, this is the the big social dilemma of the world we're living in today. And most of the biggest arguments can be sort of reduced to this issue. I think that there are two elements that that need to be, I don't know, I guess I would say repaired or rehighlighted. On one hand, the Torah says, if I could take even the Rabbi Sachs' idea of the the shared morality, right, meaning we're not all going to think the same thing, we're not all going to share the same opinions, neither do we have to, but we have to have something that binds us together, whether it's the will to do good for each other or certain moral imperatives, the Torah's answer to that. Is law. The thing we share with each other, there's one element of it, is that we share a law code. And that law code is something that I think is supposed to bind us together. Now, of course, we live in the modern religious world, so we know that there are multiple ways to express this religious law code. But if we start to be able to see those different expressions of the law as related expressions or all connected to a similar a center point. Then that is one element that theoretically can bind us together. Meaning, it doesn't just have to be social justice laws, but meaning all laws as they are. We're all celebrating the same holiday. You know, we're all we're all having those legal elements in common. That's one idea I think the Torah has to offer. The other idea the Torah has to offer, which again much of the Western world has lost, but those of us still anchored to a religious tradition haven't, is that we share this is, I'm talking about religious society, I've taken out the broader societal question for a moment, is that we share a common story. You know, there's this beautiful quote that I have recently started reading the work of uh, Professor Jeffrey Rubenstein, who writes on Agatha and the Gemara, and I came across this quote recently of his that I thought was really beautiful. And he also, in his own words, presents or describes the dilemma or the divergence into extreme individualism that you've described. A very short quote of as he says the following. It's in his book, The Land of Truth. The challenge, even crisis of modernity can be understood in part As the shattering of narrative worlds formed by the stories shared by members of traditional societies. The causes of this rupture include the enlightenment, the loss of faith in the presumptive authority of the past, scientific and technological progress, historical self-consciousness, and the rise of individualism and autonomy. Modernity involves a sense of distance, a feeling of alienation from the traditional world of our ancestors. We no longer believe their stories. And I think that part of what the call becomes is that societies and sub-societies, which has been happening, need to gather around a story. You know, sometimes in Hebrew, we call this a kihila. Uh, for religious Jews, we gather around our stories. I mean, that's what we're doing every week, you know, in, an ep- in podcasts like this, we're gathering around our stories. But yeah. I think that for a broader society, the question becomes, what do they gather around when religious ideas are no longer relevant for the broader population.
1: So number one, it's super interesting because obviously Rabbi Sachs speaks about the idea of a common narrative. He speaks about it in a lot of his books, especially actually in the book, The Home We Build Together. Yeah, because he speaks speaks about 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 it in regards to
0: England and Britain itself lost its common narrative. Exactly,
1: exactly. But he also speaks about it in his Haggadah, for example, which I highly recommend, um, where he speaks about the idea of the common narrative of the Exodus and why we have to relive it every year there's no question the common narrative is 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 super important and and actually ties in exactly to what i think is a parallel discussion and that is the idea of identity formation because the entire sefer bamidba if we if we look at Shit, in sefer shit and even in sefer shmot to a degree it's very much about the formation of the personal identity Se- yeah. certainly and sefer mm-hmm. shit right mm-hmm. you spoke about it in your podcast right But Sefer Shemot and Sefer Bamidba is about the formation of the national identity. Now, you cannot have the formation of the national identity without, first and foremost, the formation of the individual identity. And then the question is, what is the matrix in which we form an individual identity? Now, postmodernism will have us believe that we do not need to have any ties whatsoever. In fact, identity is something that we can form without any conditional elements to it, with any conditions. What Judaism... Or I would say the counter protest to that is the kind of I guess more monotheistic outlook or even traditional outlook which says, no, of course we are free individuals. We believe in the idea of man being created freely because that's the basis of the Bible. However, we are also born into certain conditions. And one of the conditions we're born into is the condition of our family. And again, Le Mishbochotam. They each have a name, they each are individuals, but they also have concentric circles of attachment. And I think that the idea of the formation of the individual and the formation of the nation are are parallel narratives and they all rest on, as you said, on the idea of law, which is all about boundaries, by the way, because without boundaries, one cannot form an identity. And therefore, we have the whole of Sefa Bhamidba begins with the idea of boundaries, who's inside, who's outside, who is part of the people, who is not part of the people, who is Tumahu's Tara. The Livyim, institutions, as you said, a common narrative, but it's also about religious institutions. It's not just religious institutions. Today, it can be about any type of institutions, but institutions also form our identity. The Livyim is, if you look in in Parashat Bamidba, immediately after the narrative of the names comes, uh, we're told about the Livyim. The Livyim is the religious institution in the Midbar. It's the educators. It's the people that don't have actually a geographical location and are walk or move around the camp. And we, as people as individuals, we need to sustain the Livyim because they're sustaining us. I
0: just want to throw out here, because we're going to have to wind down soon, but my question becomes, if we've put into place so many great institutions in the first chapters of Amin so what the heck goes wrong? Do you you know what I'm saying? And I think that, by the way, one of the answers that maybe we'll think about as we progress through the Parshiot is that it might be that some of the threads that connect some of those mistakes are places where individuals put themselves over the collective totally. in places where they weren't supposed to be there. I'm thinking uh, just, you know, of uh, Korach. of Korach. And I'm thinking of the, also the story of the Meraglim, right? They were there to yeah. serve a larger yeah. national purpose, yeah. and they messed up big time. And e- even the totally. story of Moshe and Aaron and Miriam, where they also, they get ve- they get bogged down. Again, not a criticism of, of Aaron and, and Miriam, but they get bogged down with who Moshe is, right? And, and it's these moments where, like those individual urges to be better than be higher up than, or yeah. that my opinion matters more than the collective good. Again, we're not trying to go back here to a socialist society, but, but I think that one of the threads that if we think about it through this prison that comes through in a lot of those mistakes is that the demise happens when the individual is unable to see themselves as part of a broader collective.
1: There's no question that all of Sefer Bahman's, about you asked what went wrong. Yeah. Well, Look at society today, Yosefa. (laughs) What's going wrong here in Israel? (laughs) What's going wrong? Right. What's going wrong here in Israel? What's going wrong in the world, broadly speaking? What's going wrong is exactly what you said. It's when it's the breakdown of the social institutions that nurture a sense of the common good, of social capital, of the idea that there's something bigger and more transcendent than the I. And when we are only focused on self-interest on our egos, on whatever else it is, right, which is really just about the eye, that is when things go wrong. And for sure, Robert Putnam writes about this idea that the identity development in 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 America in the last few decades has been focused primarily on the eye. Whereas the identity development, for example, Alexis de Tocqueville goes to America mm-hmm. and he comes yes. back to Europe and he speaks about what's incredible about America. And one of the things he points out is that they do have a very strong sense of the individual, that people can, you know, go from rags to riches and they can be the making of themselves. But, and this is this was the key to his analysis, was that they have incredible... Frameworks of social institutions that create a common good and a common destiny and purpose. What changes from what Alexis to Tocqueville goes to what we're seeing today is very simple change. Those social institutions have broken down because the eye has become far more dominant, but not in the right way. Not in terms of, you know, individual responsibility to something bigger than myself, but still fulfilling my you know, self-fulfillment and, mm-hmm. and we see in Sefer Bamidba, meaning Sefer Bamidba in so many ways is actually just a um, a microcosm of the history of humanity and societal formation. And what we see in Sefer Bamidba in so many ways are, exactly where we can go right, which I think is the beginning of Sefer Bamidbar. You're being, counted, you're being counted on to form an army. And yet I'm dignifying you as the individual because you should know that you are important and your identity formation is made out of the concentric circles of your family, of your tribe, of your nation. And yet there's many moments in Sefer Bamidbar when that fails. So we have, like you said, the ideal and the real.
0: Yeah, so I think that we're obviously going to get into that more as we go along. And I guess to, to sort of wrap up this idea, I think that it, it's exactly the pursuit that you re-quoted right now, because I think that there has been no greater enterprise in my entire life that has reminded me about the individual versus a collective than being part of a family, but specifically raising a family because we live in a world today where we do not have to stay anchored to our, our nuclear families. And there are so many ways that society enables us to separate them, but creating your own family, which again, we're not gonna, we're not here to talk today, but all the social ills that exist, but of course the, the breakdown of the family is part of this story, right? It's part of this story because when you no no longer exist in a family setting, you don't have daily reminders that your needs aren't the most important. And when you have children, you can't can't go a day without remembering that. So I think that that piece also at the beginning of Amidbar as you said counting them within their families is that at the the base but also unit. emphasizing the name exactly. the name and the family yes. right yes you have an identity but you're part of a family yeah. and that yeah. family is part of a nation and what i will say is this is that we're not going to solve the world's problems right now and western society is in is in is in a real moment in time where a lot of those institutions have been broken down and it'll take a lot longer than this podcast to rebuild them but certainly those of us living in a religious society we still have those institutions relatively intact. Have they undergone change? Are they undergoing change that we may not even like? All that is true. But we still have these institutions of being, of having our identity, which we're more aware of now than we were 30 years ago. All of us are much more self-aware and a little bit more self-focused than we was. And there are a lot of positive outgrowth of that. And there are some negatives as well. But we live in a family structure and we also are part of a national structure. And those are things that I think in the future, they are, they're meant to be, they'll go back to being sort of a a light to the world in things that the world once knew and then sort of it went out of fashion and, and over time it'll have to somehow be recreated in a way that the world can can digest. We hope that the world can digest again. Yeah. No, but I guess I want to just take a moment of gratitude for living in that kind of, System, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. And what one thing I was thinking while you were talking
1: and, and t- thinking about our friendship, your is that how much support you also need in order to raise a family, meaning from all different directions. How many times have we spoken, me and you, mm-hmm. about you know various challenges with kids or dynamics or whatever it happens to be, and how many how much you need the support because it's not something that an individual can do. Like you know, the yeah. saying it takes it takes a kfal, it takes a village to the point to raise is that you're a, saying a is that.
0: That family unit then demands that you have a communal unit. Yeah. Meaning it, it yeah. demands that exactly. you be part of this larger group. And and exactly. that this census and the opening of Amidbar, at least in its theoretical level, is really is really setting the stage for that. That this society I, can only work with those consensus circles. <laughs>
1: I want to just finish with, with one other thought that connects what we were saying right from the beginning to what we're saying now mm-hmm. is that the, the we spoke about the idea of the maturation of the people. And part of maturing as an individual is to move beyond my immediate needs. Now, as a child, what yeah. do you think about? An infant only thinks about their immediate needs. They only think about the I. And part of the maturation process is to move And to recognize that I am something bigger and larger than myself. Now, those of you that have, those of us, I should say, that have young children, we recognize and we give to the child because we know that the child can't see beyond his own immediate needs. As our children mature and we expect them to be a little bit more altruistic and a little bit less selfish, we get fed up when they can't see beyond the eye. In my mind, that's one of the reasons Moshe has a total breakdown in Parashat Baalotcha, because the people only want their immediate gratification of meat and whatever else it is, and they can't see that there's a bigger picture. So that's also this idea of of the I and the we and the social institutions and everything else that creates a society requires us to move beyond the infancy of immediate gratification to something much more altruistic and transcendent and that, again, we see that dynamic once again in Sefer Bamidbal. So I think that's super important.
0: Tanya, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We can't necessarily solve the world's problems, but we can certainly philosophize about <laughs> them. So I appreciate this conversation. I think that's about
1: as much as far as we can get at this precise moment.
0: Yeah. As <laughs> but it's better Israel than
1: nothing. Crisis. It's yeah. better than nothing. Maybe we'll inspire some people who will be more active and be able to go and change some things in the world.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Tanya.
1: Thank you, Yosefa.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast.matan.org.il. That's podcast.matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.